friends, shall we bow our heads in prayer before we begin? Let us pray. <coughs> Come, O Holy Spirit, you who inspired the writing of the scriptures through Paul, Lord, we ask also that you inspire us with a wisdom and an understanding of your word that we might live your life in accordance to your truth. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're giving it a moment for the slides to come up. Uh, while the slides are being uh, brought up, I want to uh, set a context again for what Paul is saying. Uh, Paul has already written in uh, 1 Corinthians some of the issues that they are struggling with. But in 2 Corinthians, he's still wrestling with this issue of authority uh, in the church. And there's this argument that's going on about his authority as an apostle uh, after Jesus. You see, one of the issues about being an apostle is that an apostle is a witness uh, to the life of Jesus Christ, that he has seen uh, Jesus at work. And Paul uh, was not around or was not one of the followers of Jesus during the period when Jesus was doing his ministry. But Paul, on the road to Damascus, had actually seen uh, God appear to him and, and Jesus had said to him, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, that was in relation to his persecution of the church. So within the church, in this Corinthian church, there were people who were opposed to Paul and in particular, there was a group of people, sometimes called the Gnostics, but a more uh, hyper-spiritual group of people. Uh, they would speak in tongues, they would uh, basically go off on a tangent, start giving prophecies, and they go into ecstasies and say they had secret knowledge, uh, knowledge that the Spirit had given to them. But they were also people who were engaging in immorality, uh, sexual immorality that we had spoken uh, spoken about in 1 Corinthians, as well as they had very warped and twisted ways of looking at Scripture. And so, Paul is trying to address this, but one of the questions that people are struggling with is, Paul, uh, why are you willing to suffer so much for this? Given that these people are rejecting you and your ministry is not uh, prospering, in other words, people aren't readily accepting what you're saying, Shouldn't this be a sign to you that this is not from God? Okay, let, me, let me say that again. Paul is encountering struggles, difficulty, trials, and a lot of issues. Uh, some people are leaving and are opposed to him. And so the argument that they have to him is, hey, if this is from God, why are you suffering? Why is it so difficult? If it's from God, shouldn't it succeed and shouldn't it bear much fruit? And why are you persisting and persevering in doing this? Now, for, uh, for those who are doing the Bible knowledge uh, quiz, uh, especially our Form 5 students who are doing BK, they will go through the study of Luke and Acts. And in Acts, one of the things they learn about is how many times uh, Paul gets persecuted. He used to persecute the Christians. Now he's being persecuted by the very people whom he used to represent. Uh, close to three times he's whipped uh, 40 lashes minus one. In other words, you're, you're whipped almost close to death. Twice he's shipwrecked. Many times he shoot out. Uh, uh, they, they just want to kill him if at all possible. 
And in spite of this, he's imprisoned, not just by the Jewish officials, but also by the Roman officials. And he is uh, never given easy passage into any city. In fact, in, uh, in sometimes when he enters into a city, the whole city is put up into uproar because of what he says. Uh, tends to make me wonder about my preaching. You know, when I preach, people say, wow, good, uh, good. Uh. When Paul preaches, everybody wants to stone him. So maybe I'm saying the wrong things. And so Paul is addressing this thing. Why, why is it that he continues to preach this word? And what is his answer to those opponents who are opposed uh, to him? And I've titled this session, uh, Glory That Outweighs Our Troubles, 2 Corinthians 3.17-4.18. to 4, 18. It's one of the most lovely passages in, uh, in the letter of Paul where he gives some words which I tried to memorize. Uh, if, you, if you would like to, you can take this and take some of his favorite verses and memorize it and read it to yourself. Now, he begins in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18 by making this particular statement. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I like to, to just go through this text and you, you see it beginning in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit uh, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then you go down to the end of that particular passage which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's an encapsulation that the Lord and the Spirit are one. Who is this Spirit? This is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus, this Trinitarian uh, being in one. But all through this whole passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, starting in chapter 3, uh, from 2-3 onwards, uh, he is making a comparison between Moses, uh, who is the one who gives the law, and Jesus, who gives the Holy Spirit, who releases the Holy Spirit. And talking about this new ministry uh, that is given to us, which is a ministry of the Spirit. That is a covenant of the Spirit. No longer a covenant of the law which Moses gives. So Moses comes, he gives the Ten Commandments, and what Paul has been saying all this while is, the law is good, but the law points to the fact that you are sinful. And the law, most law, gives you your punishment. You know, if you read through any law book, you will find, okay, these are the rights and the attributes given to you. But if you break them, this is the punishment. And so the law led to death. This covenant of the law led to death. It was not evil. It was good, which is what he argues about in Romans as well as 1 Corinthians. But it was a pointer to them that they were failing to do what the law required. But instead... Uh, the covenant of the Spirit releases it such that you are free now. And this freedom is given to them in order that they be able to respond. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. You need to give me a moment because we might have a bit of a medical situation here. Can I have a doctor in the house please? 
and friends, we pray for them. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we pray for auntie and uncle, Lord, we ask, uh, especially in her dizziness, and uh, let your grace and your spirit be with her, that you restore her strength, Lord, and uh, that you help us, Lord, to cover her and also grant healing for her, Lord. We ask this and commit her to you, resting assured, Lord, in your, in your strength and uh, your sustenance for her, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, I pray it wasn't because of my preaching. <laughs> uh, Auntie was feeling a bit dizzy, and you could see her um, going off. I think she has a bit of a diabetic um, uh, problem, so she needs to get a bit of sugar into her. Okay, so don't worry. I think they have many doctors. We thank the doctors for attending to her, and we continue this. Okay, so... Um, Paul is dealing with this issue now. Uh, he is reminding the people that you are now in a new covenant, not of the law, but of the Spirit. And the Spirit grants us freedom, and you might be asking, freedom from what? Okay. Now, this freedom is not so much freedom to do whatever you want to do, which is what the, which is what the, the Corinthian church, this group who were saying, no, we are hyper-spiritual and since we are of God and we know God, we can do whatever we want to. God has forgiven everything, so you carry on, do what you want to. Now, there's a fair bit of echoes in current day uh, theology where people go about saying this. It's, uh, uh, they call it hyper-grace. Uh, they also may call it the prosperity gospel. Uh, name it and grab it. This, these things that promise you freedom. You may have some people who come and tell you, it's like, well, Jesus has forgiven your sin and since he has forgiven it and the efficacy of his forgiveness is perfect, you no longer need to confess sins, that you no longer sin. Well, I would like to challenge that because in other parts of scripture, John, who speaks to the church and the Christian says to you, if you say, brother, that you have no sin, then you are a liar and you are basically making the death of Jesus pointless. And so there is an interpretation of what people twist to basically make them say, you're free now. Okay? Uh, do what you want to. There is no sin that you cannot do that God cannot forgive you. And so rather than people going into an attitude to, to, of thankfulness for forgiveness and effectively coming back to God for reconciliation all the time, there is this tendency, on the other hand, to say, oh, I just do and be what I want to be, I'm free. There's a fine line. Yes, Jesus does forgive and his forgiveness is effective. But there is a forgiveness of sin that leads to death, which, which John and uh, Paul do talk about, uh, for, uh, a sin that does not lead to death as opposed to sin that is deadly. You see, the moment that we sin, and when we come to the Lord and we say, Father, forgive me, I have sinned. The first time when we confess Jesus as Lord, that's the moment when our, our sins, in terms of sins that lead us to death, are forgiven. But thereafter, we still continue to sin, but those sins don't lead us to death. In the sense that they actually affect our relationship with God in our closeness of living in response to God. And so these are the issues uh, that Paul is wanting to deal with. You are free. You're free from the sin of law and death. Right? But it also still means that you are compelled 
to fulfill these commandments. Else, why would Jesus say right, that those who have the, the Spirit in them will be even more righteous than the Jews? Their righteousness would surpass that of the Jews and the Sadducees. It's not that because of the law, but because through the Spirit, they would be doing what the law required. Verse 18, uh, And we all who with unveiled faces uh, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image. Now, this is taken from uh, the Exodus story where when Moses receives the commandments and he is spending time in the presence of God, his face begins to shine with the Lord's glory. At one point, Moses had said to the people, Come with me so that we may receive this law. And they said to him, you go. We will stay down here. You go. And so although they had access to God, uh, they were being invited to come into the presence of God because God was allowing them and had set them aside to do so. They were very fearful. They didn't want to. So Moses went on his own. He spent time in there such that the glory of God began to reflect on his face. And when Moses came down, they veiled their faces. They, they said, oh, too bright, too bright. Don't want to see you too, you're, you're too much. And so now Paul is beginning to take that imagery, uh, but this unveiling is not so much, it's taken from Moses, but it's more to do with the fact that we no longer see through a screen or through uh, an intermediary. We have direct access to God through Jesus and the word of God that is given to us. And that's what he means to be unveiled. We now have the scriptures as revealed to us. Now, these are the same scriptures that the Jewish people had. But although they read the scriptures, their, their faces were veiled because they could not see what was being shown to them. And what was eventually being shown to them was Jesus. And so for those who see Jesus, they are seeing it, uh, the scriptures unveiled as this is the realization of what that was all about for. And for those who see this with unveiled faces and look at the Lord's glory, they are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. So if you were to ask yourself, what is the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose of the Christian life? One of the answers, the very simple answer is so that you would be transformed into the image of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. In particular, the image of Christ Jesus. So if ever I ask myself, what am I doing this for? The answer should be so that I would be more and more like Christ Jesus, so that others would be more and more like Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the perfected image of what Adam was supposed to be. Adam had the ability, let us make man in the, uh, you know, in the image of God. And so Adam had the ability to reflect the image of God, but he failed. Jesus, on the, on the other hand, comes as fully God, fully man. He is the image of God in a man. So that, to me, is like the ideal, the perfection. I used to, in my life, uh, last time, uh, have all these figures in my mind to say, I'd like to be like this guy, I'd like to be like that. And I, when I was in the corporate world, there were all these 
global leaders who were rich, powerful, very influential. And I said, nice to be them. Live in castles, have many cars, uh, go clubbing or do whatever you want to, and everybody at back and call. And I had to reshift my worldview. Uh, Jesus came and pretty much upended my worldview, and he says, I am that figure of what perfection should be, not these guys. Because as I, as I grew up and as I interacted with these people, I realized how marred their figures were. They were very rich, very powerful, but very broken, very lonely, very unhappy, uh, divorced, a lot of properties, children fighting over properties. Uh, and, and, and we come to that situation where as we go on in life, we eat more salt, we realize that Jesus is the personification of what is right and good and true and pure. And we are called to be more and more like that. It's a very difficult image uh, to compare yourself with, but that's the image that we're told to. Am I being more and more like Jesus? And when we understand what that image looks like, <coughs> uh, into His image with ever-increasing glory, we realize that Jesus, every time Paul refers to Him uh, in glory, it's always about the cross, that he suffered and died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Now, when we think about glory, we always think about the heavens, the glory, bright and wonderful, majestic. But that only happens along the path to the cross. And so the realization that all of us have to go through is to be like Jesus is in a way to walk the path of the cross. Why else does Jesus say, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself daily, take up the cross and follow me. We like to bypass the cross. He says, Lord, just, you know, rapture me, take me away so that I don't have to go through this. But you realize the symbol of the cross is a symbol of love. And I'd like you to go back and think about this that every act of love is a giving of the self. And when we understand John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That pouring out of Jesus' life on the cross is love, a giving, a giving of His life. Mothers and fathers give of their life every day when they wake up early in the morning and then they get their children ready and they go to work to work in order to provide for the children in the two o'clock in the morning when the baby is sick, they wake up and get up. It's a giving of the self. But every act of sin is essentially not you, but me. Every act of sin is in a way a grabbing of other people's life for yourself. More for me more money for me, more asset for me, less for you. Give it some thought that in this increasing giving of ourselves, we are learning what it means to love and in that love, we see the glory of God being revealed for what it truly is. So, Paul uh, goes to make this point about us being competent ministers 
We're ministers of the Spirit. We're competent ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit. What's a covenant? A covenant is more than a contract. Okay? Covenants, uh, contracts are like, you know, this is the benefit, these are the penalties. You break the contract, basically, there's no contract anymore. But a covenant is a promise between two where even if one fails to give out of its uh, rights and duties and obligations, the other one may continue to still hold to this covenant. A covenant is only broken when both mutually abandon this covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And it is more than just, if you don't love me, then we divorce because the contract is over. No, it is a case that when even when one fails to hold up the other side of the bargain, the other person can still continue to sustain that covenant. So Paul says, you're competent ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit. And then he reminds them, the Lord is Spirit. Where He is, there is freedom. And those with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Our contemplation of Him transforms us into his image our contemplation of him now uh, the scripture that God gives to us and even as Annette said last uh, last day last week during uh, Father's Day we are under scripture that scripture speaks to us and reads us we read scripture but scripture reads us but we do not make Scripture God in the sense that Scripture points us to Jesus. Now, why do I carefully say this? You see, the Jews, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they read the Scriptures, they were memorizing it and they were making it a God unto themselves. But when the personification of that Scripture, which is the living word, Jesus, appears before them, they could not, did not recognize Him. Do you, you get this? It's very often that we can use the scriptures and we can clobber people with it. Thus says the Lord, the Bible says this. But then we are unable to see Christ behind all of this. And so sometimes you really have to wrestle really hard. What would Christ do in all these situations? Common example I give, you know, when, when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, the law clearly said, people caught in adultery, take a stone, stone them. But Jesus, on the other hand, turned to the other people and said, anyone without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. And all of them basically dropped the stones. Only, only God is judge because only he is righteous and perfect. But then she has to continue to live. Although he forgave her, he said, go and sin no more. Right? She has to go back to the husband. She has to go back to the community. She still has to live that life and confront the brokenness of that relationship. And so when we see Jesus, we see what love is on top of all these commandments. And the Spirit sets them free in order to follow him. But if you just look at the law, the law means kill this woman. No second chances. But the law will still apply. Okay. How does our contemplation of Him transform us into the image? Now, it's not just about memorizing your Bible study, doing your quiet time. That's, that's a contemplation of the Word of God. 
but that word of God needs to translate itself from our head into our heart, into our hands. Many of us know this. When we come to a church, in church we have people who uh, identify themselves as Christians, right? But you can ask the husband or the wife or the children or the grandchildren or their employees or friends. They, they say they're Christians, but they are worse than some of the pagans outside. They know their scriptures, they know their law, but they do not have the Spirit of God in them. And so we must ask ourselves, how do we continue to change? If in spite of the fact that we have the scriptures, in spite of the fact that we believe in Jesus, yet we are not transformed into His image. I can only give you this phrase that's coming into my head. And this phrase is the question that Jesus asks, Do you love me? Who do you say I am to you? Your answer to that question will determine how much you are contemplating him. Much in the same way, if I contemplate my wife or I contemplate my children, if love fills me, then I'm willing to do what it takes in order for them to feel secure and to grow in love. But if I just see that and I can say, yeah, you've got this dimple there and you've got this hair here, you don't do this for me, you don't do that for me. I'm contemplating her or the kids, but I'm focusing on the things that basically say, I just know about you. I don't know you. Because to know someone is to love them. And there is this ever-increasing glory from the Lord who is the Spirit. You will know a person who is a competent minister of, of the Word of God by the fact that they are increasingly more and more like Jesus. Some of us, we spend too much time with each other, we don't really see it. But you meet some friends and 10 years ago and it changes. A friend of mine, um, he was saying, Ron, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I took to heart your message about the fact that we need to reach out to my non-Christian friends. So I reconnected with my old boys. Uh, they have a WhatsApp group and all that stuff. And so I rejoined their group and I was uh, trying to connect with them. But Ron, you know, the amount of profanity that they have in there, the amount of uh, videos and uh, all this stuff and politics that they're throwing inside there is like really, ooh. And I, and I thought to myself, I used to be like that. I used to be one of them and it used to make me laugh, but now it doesn't. Something has changed and I reckon it's for the better. And the friends also realized, hey, last time you were like this, now you come amongst us and you, you're quite, quite different. And he asked, is it good or bad? And he says, uh, good and bad. La. Good in the sense that it is good, bad in the sense that we feel bad. La. Because, you know, you, you, don't, you don't do the things we want to do. And you're our conscience now. Ever increasing glory. And brothers and sisters, I want to especially say this to our seniors because you are strong and you are the ones who are most stable. Ever increasing means as we get older, that glory should be greater. Increasing. It should not be a case that, oh, now that I'm older, I've done it already, I don't need to evangelize. Let other people do the evangelism. 
I don't need to go missionary other people. I know our responses tend to be, I'm too tired for this. But really, some of the biggest work that is available for you as grandparents is before you. Because you now need to model to your grandchildren what it means to be faithful and to be transformed into the likeness of Christ Jesus. And rest assured, you do make a huge difference. One of the earliest memories I have is about my grandmother praying over me in a language I didn't understand. She was Fu Chao, Fu Tian, from Kampong Ko. I know some people here were, yeah. <laughs> she spoke in Fu Chao, and I didn't understand a single word of it, except when she says, Amen. But I remember it, and it affected me that here was a godly woman who cared enough to pray for me and make it a point even though it was long. Will you leave that message for your children, your grandchildren, that you are praying for them? And as a parent of my own, in spite of the amount of time I spend with my kids, I have realized the power of prayer is indispensable. You have to. It's not about setting a good environment and providing just for them. You need the power of God for them to make the right decisions because I'm not all-seeing, only God is. So, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Paul says this in verse 1, he repeats it again in verse 16. So it's a bit of an inclusio. We do not lose heart. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. In other words, it's not Paul's ministry. It's God's ministry given to him in order to do. That's the greatest thing about ministry, at least for me. Okay? Uh, it's something which I remind myself. That although there are thousands of things to do, when I fail to do the things that I'm supposed to do, I'm reminded that this is God's work. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who will count in and settle everything. I'm just accompanying him and holding on to his hand, holding on for dear life, really. Because what I fail to do, he does. I see that for my children as well. When my children fail to do what they're supposed to do, sometimes if it's important enough, I will do it for them. I cover them. And so, when we do these things, I offer up my best, my best I leave the rest to God, and I don't lose heart. Many of us are reaching this point where we are losing heart. Paul is this type of person who, if anyone, he would be one of the primary candidates to lose heart. Because that's what the people are saying, you know, ministry is so hard, obviously God is not with you. <laughs> if God is with you, surely you would succeed. Now this is to put to rest many people who say that the ministry of God should be prosperous, that you should see results. And I say, yes, you will see results, not necessarily in your lifetime. It may happen years after. Countless missionaries gone into China, died, passed away. How many, how many conversions? Zero. 40 years later, suddenly the village is all Christian. They ask why? Because of this missionary that came. He died here. Can you imagine all the missionaries, you know, uh, the one we talk about in Wesley Methodist School, Penang International, Pai Ket, <laughs> uh, 
all these names that we have are missionaries who came and if some of them died of typhoid, malaria, uh, some of our Batak missionaries who came into Orang Asli, they died. Did they lose heart? No. All the way to the end, they continued. Paul continues, We have renounced secret, shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, it's very easy for someone to use rhetoric, uh, excellent speech, you know, g- do great dramas and all that stuff um, in order to influence you. You know, people used to say, oh, uh, a good and powerful ministry is one where there are many people who come and they want to hear uh, the preaching. I said, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, you can go to a rock concert and people pay money for that and it'll be really popular and they can fill an entire stadium. So some people go for entertainment and they like to hear what they want to hear. Uh, Jesus, at one point in his ministry, had thousands before him, but towards the end of his ministry, when he was really coming to his glory, everyone else wanted to leave him. He said to the disciples, are you also going to leave me? So when it comes to suffering, nobody wants to follow you. When it comes to food, because when he was feeding people, there were 5,000, 7,000, 20,000. Yeah, entertain them, feed them, they will follow you. But give them the word that calls for suffering. (laughs) Sorry, uh, this one, that one. Setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. What is Paul trying to say in this? The ministry that we conduct, this ministry of the Spirit, is demonstrated by a few things. One, perseverance. Okay, we do not lose heart. So you really want to know a person who is working in the Spirit, they don't give up. They're quite consistent. and, and uh, Why? Because their, uh, their anchor and their compass is driven by something you do not see, something that is driven by a future. The people who pray obviously pray because of something that is not seen. They pray in an anchor that is ahead of them that gives them hope. And so perseverance is one of the hallmark traits of a person who has this ministry of the Spirit. But he renunci- uh, renunciation of shameful, and as I might add, Paul also says, disgraceful ways. Why? Because the people who were opposing him were saying, um, we have the Spirit in us, and the Spirit of God in us has given us all this secret knowledge, therefore we can prophesy, we can do all these things, but... At the same time, we can go to the temple and we can indulge ourselves in sexual immorality, sleep around with temple prostitutes, because that's my body. My body is sinful, God will forgive me anyway. My spirit, on the other hand, is free, and I will go back to God. So what they did to their body, they dichotomized and they said, I can continue to do my sin, but God is ever forgiving, and my spirit is of God, and I will go back to God. You hear that nowadays as well. Do what you need to do, It's okay, God forgives you. God loves you. But how do you reconcile this with this renunciation of shameful ways? That is an integrity of a person that says, what God has called me to do, I must be consistent. 
in doing. And thirdly, setting forth the truth very simply. One of the things I learned from a, a, a learned and elder uh, pastor who was a bit like a spiritual father was the fact that he would set forth the truth very simply, very plainly. And when people were opposed to him and they wanted to literally clobber him, okay, many conflicts in churches, okay, I won't, I won't run away from the fact. Some of the churches and people argue in churches not about good and evil, going to say this very carefully. Uh, people argue in churches not about good and evil. They argue in churches about good and better. Because evil, right, you say, oh, let's go and steal that property. No one will say no. But when you say, let's build this on this property, someone will say, no, 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 I've got this better plan. We should do this. And that's where the argument starts. But what Paul argues for is truth. What is truth? Why are we here for? We are here in order to be transformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Will doing this bring about that transformation? Will doing this make it happen? And so sometimes we say, uh, once there was one ask, person asked in America, does offering better coffee make you transformed into the likeness of Christ? And some people will argue yes because it's drawing the kind of people that we want into that so that we can bear witness to them. But it forces us to think, why and who and what are we reaching out to? Are we still trying to make them into the likeness of Christ? Uh, one writer uh, put it down this way, your conduct reveals the content of your character. I'll say this again. Your conduct reveals the content of your character. I'm wrestling to some issues right now, whether I should go and do a master's in theology and eventually do a PhD. Uh, I've been asked to, to consider it because they need lecturers. But one of the things that hit me was uh, this caption that says, it's not your PhD that determines your character, it's your conduct. You can be absolutely papered, you know, you have all your credentials and all your paper. But if your conduct is such that you're the type of guy who stops by a traffic light, winds down the window, throws out rubbish out the door, swears at people, that's your character. No amount of paper can cover up those character flaws. And I have met some orang asli and really poor people whose character is far more precious than some of the most principled people that we have. Our culture alleviates uh, all these qualifications. Eh? Uh, when Bill Clinton as president of America fell down from grace as a result of his uh, sexual immorality, he's a Rhodes Scholar, he's got all these things. It's not your paper and your credentials and your position, it's your conduct that determines your character. So brothers and sisters, this is a very sharp laser eye thing that Paul is saying, you know. If you really want to be a minister of God where God has set you free, your conduct will be evident from it. Paul does say, our gospel is veiled. As much as we share this gospel, some people will not understand it, will not see Christ. 
And yes, many people come to our church sometimes wanting the community, wanting the friendship, but never seeing Christ in the midst of it. So when you ask them the question, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? They cannot answer. But you ask them, what is the church to you? Yeah, the church buys me groceries, they get me rental, they take care of me. When I fall sick, they come and you know, they love what the church can do for them. But they're not in love with the person at the centre of what it is all about. And so their motivations and their issues are different. God of this age, Satan, uh, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. It is the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. What is the gospel? God so loved the world, He gave His life, that whoever believed in Him, it's the cross and the resurrection life. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as well. So, if at any time what I'm preaching is about how you can behave better and how you can be more profitable and how you can be a better, healthier person, that's not the truth. At the center of this truth, you should always hear this constant theme of Jesus, the gospel, God, at the center of it all. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul is a servant to his people. This is why he's doing these things. That word there, icon toteo, uh, image of God, icon, it's an icon. That when you see this icon, you're in a way seeing the very image of God. Gospel light displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is the gospel that presents to others what God looks like. And so when we present the gospel to others, it is not just by what we say, but what we do. Are we presenting the image of God? Or are we painting something else? Paul continues, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, you know, jars of clay in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Jesus' time, some of them are single use only. And they're very fragile, they easily break, and they're used for many things. Could be oil, could be water, just to contain these things. But what Paul is saying, this jars of clay is basically mud. They, they take mud, they shape it, they bake it under persecution. But what is valuable is not the jar, although I know some people who are paying a lot of money for jars. Uh, what Paul is saying is what is in that jar is the treasure. And what is that thing in that jar? Spirit of God in you. With you in your spirit. He's also reminding these people, you know, these jars of clay, they break. All of us, as we age, are breaking. Different parts of us are breaking down. Every single moment, something is dying in your body. But there is this treasure in these jars of clay. And so he says this, uh, hard-pressed on every side, not crushed. Pressed but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. He's describing himself but he's also describing the life of any follower of Jesus who encounters these things. If you want an example, let me tell you about the people in Guangzhou. 
Let me tell you about the people in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, friends of mine who basically say, that is us. Pressed on every side. Government wants to kick them, chuck them into prison. You know, my greatest fear is that our Christian brothers and sisters uh, are probably a bit like what's happening to Falun Gong right now. That their organs will, will be put into imprisonment, their organs may be harvested, they may be persecuted, beaten up, they're just treated like rubbish to be discarded because you don't conform to the ideology. Hard pressed. Every side, but not crushed. Pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Why? Because sometimes there are things that happen and we ask, God, why did you allow such evil people and such evil things to happen to good people? I'm perplexed, but not in despair. Because I always know God is sovereign. He does what is good. We trust Him. So that's not despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. You know, the number of autobiographies you read where they're stuck in prison, but God is close to them. They're stuck in prison, but they're converting the prisoners with them. Captive audience. They're stuck in prison, but they're the people who have the most fellowship around them. Struck down, but not destroyed. Yeah, we are, sometimes. But never destroyed, because what is in us is indestructible. We always carry around in us, the, in our body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We, are, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now I summarize it in these two terms. Eh? Um, we are handed over to death so that others may live. Remember that, that picture I gave to you? Love is the giving of yourself. And the giving of yourself sometimes a death of your will, a death of my pride, a death of what you're doing. You know, when, when you're driving in traffic and you've got appointments and you need to get somewhere and you see somebody there stranded at the side of the road, uh, this happened not, not, that, not that long ago. We had uh, a young lady with an elderly man who was standing next to a broken-down car with gas coming out. You want to stop, <laughs> you get late for your appointment, uh, and the choices are, I die to my desire in order to help you so that you may have life and carry on with your life. There is this tension that goes on. For many of us, this act of living is giving ourselves to someone else. I want to make you consider this. Eh? It is easy for Christians to give life to someone who will return that life back to you. In other words, I take care of you, you, you say, thank you, thank you, you're so good, you're so kind, you know, and anything you need, I help you. But that's not what we're called to do, you know. <laughs> but that's what happens in the church. People come to the church, there are some who, when you give to them, they will be very appreciative, very thankful, and they respond back, and they want to also be a blessing. But there are many who are bottomless pits. My question is, when you encounter a bottomless pit, do you then say, no, 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 not for you. I only want people who will respond back to me. 
Jesus' answer to that was, when you invite people to a banquet, don't invite your brother, your sister, your friends who will invite you back. Invite the poor, the lame, the blind, those who cannot walk. Those who know cannot respond. Because then God will reward you and He will reward you at the end. Because these people can't, God will respond to you. So this handing over to death that Paul is saying is, even though they reject me, even though they have no ability to respond to me, and they don't want what I'm giving to them, I will nonetheless give it to them because that offers them life. They have the ability to accept it. He offers his life up for this. Verses end in this way. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I wanted to illustrate it earlier on this morning, but we're running a little bit short on time. I actually put this little uh, rope that was given to me by a friend. An illustration I'd like to give with this is, if you imagine this as being an example of eternity, and it goes on and on and on and on, all the way through the church, going on to the back. How much of eternity uh, do you take up when you want to measure your life? And if I were to say that, it would probably be one handful. That's my life on this stream of eternity. And what Paul is saying is, the problems you go through in this short period of time is light and momentary. It's a moment in relation to the eternity that is to come, that stretches on and on. But if as a result of me holding on to this life, I say, this is too hot, this is too painful, I want to let go, I don't want to be a part of this eternity, you're foregoing the rest of this long line of glory and God's blessing for you. Which one would you want? A period of happiness just for this handful? Or is this only light and momentary trouble that is preparing you for the rest of eternity? It gives hope for many of us, you know, because when we talk about people who are imprisoned in their own minds because of dementia, because of uh, body failing and all that stuff, it's a reminder to them that this is momentary, that this three score and 10 years, 70 years on this life will pass, but the rest of eternity is etched out for us. And Paul ends it not in this phase, you know. He ends it in chapter 2 Corinthians. Uh, he continues on this thought into 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to verse 10, where he says this tent, temporary tent, will be replaced with an eternal body, not made by hands, but eternal in the heavens. And so for all of us who are suffering through this, let us hold on to these things. I'll leave you again with three thoughts. Do not lose heart. You do not lose heart when you hold on to the hope that is prepared for us. Remember your ministry. My ministry is to set people free through the power of the Holy Spirit so that they may be more and more like Christ Jesus. What is your ministry? Are the people whom God has given to you 
being transformed into this likeness of our Lord Jesus? Are you being transformed into the likeness of this uh, Christ Jesus? And lastly, fix your eyes on the eternals and not on the temporary. Until then, hold tight to what is good and let go that which is evil. Shall we pray? Lord, grant us your freedom and freedom in the spirit so that we may be more and more like our Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be uh, image bearers of our Lord Jesus and to continue this ministry in the covenant of the Holy Spirit to transform others into the likeness of Christ Jesus in whatever way that we can. And help us, Lord, keep our eyes on that which is unseen, the eternity before us, rather than our momentary and present troubles. We ask this, Lord, and commit this to you in Jesus' name.